New York City, more specifically Union Square. 1999, a young kid dropped off in a city with no friends or family, in absolute awe of its size and scope. Someone said to me once that in Manhattan, there's always a person within 15 feet of you, in all directions. That is why I fell in love with this city. A melting pot of stories, a grid of inspirations, the perfect place to learn how to be a filmmaker. When I hear these sounds, it takes me back to the origin of my career as a film director, back to my days at New York Film Academy. Today I invite you to join me on a trip back in time. I'm having a Skype call with my old film school buddy, film director, illustrator, comic book publisher, and father, Shrita Reddy. All right, so we're here with uh, my buddy Shrita Reddy. Um, we both uh, went to, we met in film school years ago. We both went to New York Film Academy. Um, and that was way back in like 19... 19- that was 90, Yeah. Like, like how, I mean, how long has it been since we've seen each other face to face? I think 98. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we, I mean, we've kept in touch over the years and, and uh, you know, uh, it's usually via email or, or phone call right. on occasion. Um, but uh, it's, cra- I, and I think you're, st- I think you're the only guy I still talk to from, from the school right now. Uh, I talked to Mark in, in Canada once in a while. Uh, actually, I'm going to Toronto uh, in May, so I think I might go see Brenzel. Cool. Uh, but, and then I saw Mark Fox. I was playing at a film festival in New York and Mark Fox came up for that. So, yeah. Uh, it, other than that, yeah. Can't, I haven't really kind of lost track of a lot of folks. Is Mark still working for Geronimo? I know he was working for this amazing trailer cutting studio for quite some time. Yeah. Well, last I saw him, uh, I saw, I saw Mark, uh, in, I want to say that was 2005. And he was still, he was cutting trailers at that time and he was doing a hell of a job of it too. Yeah. Cause he was working for the big boys. I mean, he was. Yeah. And then Brenzel was, he's editing, um, he was editing pajamas for Nickelodeon. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense knowing that guy. It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, cool, man. I'm, I'm really pumped that you were able to uh, uh, be on the show with us today. And I, I really just sort of want to talk about basically the theme of this whole podcast is, um, you know, uh, living the life of either a filmmaker or an artist, an independent filmmaker, an artist, and just sort of understanding that uh, the process itself takes a long time to, to achieve. Um, and it's really about appreciating the, the steps involved and the, uh, the little moments and, and finding, uh, happiness in the, in the, in the long wait to hopefully making it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the crushing nihilism and, and uh, existential uh, nightmares that come with it. <laughs> yes. Yes. You guys make it sound so fun to get into. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great day. You're going to love every second. <laughs> Um, well, let me just start kind of at the beginning, just uh, give everybody a little context. Um, so we met uh, in, uh, in Union Square in New York City, right? We were going to uh, New York Film Academy. And uh, the reason why I picked that school, I did a lot of research before. Um, and I was looking for a place that would let me touch a camera immediately. 
And uh, at the time, you know, looking through like Emerson here in Boston and all these different colleges, it was years out before I could physically get into production. And for some of the courses, like uh, I, I, I could even be voted as a boom op while one of my other like uh, uh, students ends up directing for that entire course run. So um, I ended up finding New York Film Academy and I'm not plugging them as an advertisement. I should be getting paid for it, but um, <laughs> Uh, I, I ended up picking that school because they promised that I would pick up a camera within the first day or two and then uh, ultimately make four short films over the course of that program. Which which they delivered on. Yeah, yeah they did. And, like, that was my reason for, like, uh, basically ending up in New York in a city that I had no friends or family and sort of uh, going down that route. How did you get there? So for me, um, uh, my background is in science. I'm a geneticist by training. I was working in genetics in the UK. And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to take a stab at filmmaking because it's something I really, really, you know, thought I'd always enjoy. And I didn't want to do the traditional, you know, uh, four-year school or getting an MFA. I already had two – I had three bachelor's degrees by that point. So <laughs> getting another getting another degree would just be like kind of pointless. <laughs> um, and kind of like you, I thought I thought this was a way for me to kind of dip my toe in the in – the, pool without having to make a full commitment, but also be fully immersive at the same time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it just seemed like a really short, intensive way to get a taste if this was something I really, really wanted to commit to. Because if I wanted to make, I mean, I, I had a really good job in science. And so if I was going to make the commitment to be an artist, I wanted to make absolutely sure that this is something I can and want to do. Um, and I think the New York Film Academy actually was wonderful in that regard. Um, and actually after New York Film Academy, I actually ended up enrolling at NYU, uh, because I felt like I wanted to learn more. Um, I don't know. So no shit. I didn't know you went to NYU afterwards. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But I only stayed for, uh, I only stayed for one and a half semesters pretty much. Um, because my professor at NYU said, I've seen your films. You have already way too much goddamn education as is. <laughs> he told me whatever, you know, he's like, you fundamentally understand editing and you have something to say. Whatever money you were going to put in NYU, go out and make a movie. Um, and that was his advice to me. And I, and then to date, probably some of the most sage advice I've ever received. You're lucky. You're very lucky to get that advice. There's a lot of people that I've met that, that, they don't get that advice until much, much later and a whole lot of uh, student debt later. Right. But I will say, and I don't know, I mean, I can only speak to the group that I was with at New York Film Academy. The people that we were with um, already had a very tremendous depth of cinema in their brains already. So like the, the concept of doing film studies, which I think is essential uh, to filmmaking, I think we were very lucky in that so many of our classmates had a tremendous depth of film studies already, hmm. uh, just out of pure interest. You know, the Tarantino school of just sitting and watching whatever comes in front of your face. Um, because I remember co conversations among, amongst our classmates uh, of, you know, we could go 10 films deep in terms of references. Um, yeah. And that was really, really cool. And of course, there were a lot of classmates who were just you know, they knew that they liked one kind of movie and they loved that one movie and they made that one movie over and over and over and over again, which is going to happen in any film school situation, I think. Yeah. 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 And 
I mean, we were, you're very right about that. We were lucky that we had such a passionate group of people. And, and if anything that I pulled out of, uh, that school, I don't feel like that school taught me how to direct. I don't think that's, right. I don't think that school really taught me how to use a camera. I mean, I was lucky enough that no one else in my group really wanted to use the camera. So I basically learned how to DP kind of soda, but you know, well, we had, uh, Dylan kid. That's right. We, teaching us cinematography, which was an amazing thing because he went on to direct, uh, uh, what did he direct? XXXY. And then he did, uh, he did that film with Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, it was a New York film. Really great movie. Uh, I don't know why I'm losing the name of it right now. Uh, but Dylan was a phenomenal teacher. Yeah, he was a cool guy. <laughs> I, I don't think... For me. I, I, I mean, I don't think I walked out of that place. Like now, when I show up on set, I don't, I'm not sitting there going, uh, you know, what was, what, what was this? How, how do I set this exposure? What, what did Dylan tell me? Like, not, like, I don't think that, for me at least, I didn't really pull away much as far as the technical act of... I mean, yeah, they taught me how to use a 60 millimeter... We were using 60 right. millimeter Bolex... Uh, black and white stuff, no sound. And then uh, the Steambeck stuff was awesome, like learning how to cut yes. on a Steambeck. I still use those skills today. Um, yes, but, absolutely. Um, the one thing that that school really taught me over anything else was how to produce. And I, f- right. I felt like being dropped into a city that I had no connections, no contacts to, like, uh, how do I run a casting session? Oh, fuck, like, let's just do a casting session <laughs> here in, like, Barnes & Noble. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, how do yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I remember your films, your films actually looked like films, right? <laughs> I mean, you guys, you guys built your own dollies and you did your own kind of crane shots and like, it was pretty amazing for what, what you guys were able to accomplish. And I would say with my film, I remember my final thesis film <laughs> or the, the final film, whatever, it was all me, you know? And like I did, uh, and I was still so much in my own shell. I was like, you know, introvert artist, wasn't confident that I really didn't engage, engage producing as like, oh my God, I have to go out and ask people for favors and, and services and all that kind of stuff. I was very content just doing my own thing. Uh, <laughs> I remember, but like, I remember. <laughs> yeah, like your producing skills uh, and your group was pretty phenomenal. You guys had some pretty driven guys. Um, and like, yeah, you guys got some pretty amazing shots on a pretty non-existent budget. <laughs> yeah, like zero money, basically. You know, however much it yeah, costs to buy I remember, there was like, you guys did some like poker movie, like it was around a poker table. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot uh, about that one. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, you had like these overhead crane shots. And I was like, how the fuck did you guys do that? <laughs> That's good, because that, 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 that same sort of, how the fuck did you do that exists with me now in my career at this point. Right. So uh, <laughs> it's good. Yeah, um, the... Yeah, the thing that was really cool about the stuff that you were doing, though, is that you were very much, you always seemed incredibly focused. And I remember specifically, uh, everything that we were doing was shot on black and white, no sound. And there was this bit where you wanted to do a dream sequence in color. And if I remember correctly, you just took some film, exposed the film, so it's just a clear uh, uh, film at that point, and then hand drew with like colored Sharpies this dream sequence, yeah. right? Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I hand painted like almost two minutes of footage. <laughs> uh, and like, and that was from before New York film Academy. I took a class in my undergrad pass fail, uh, at the university of Colorado in Boulder, uh, which was taught by Stan Brackage. 
And like, <laughs> I was a triple major in college. I was a molecular biology, anthropology, and mass communications major. And I had a pass fail course that I could use, and I had never used it. So I was like, you know, let me take a film, you know, film 101 course. And it was taught by Stan Brackage, who is one of the greatest avant garde filmmakers of all time. He did movies like Moth Lights and Dogman Star. Wow. Uh, the Inferno. And he was all about physical manipulation of the medium. Mm. Uh, of the medium. So he would, you know, there's Moth Light. Uh, he actually took pieces of moths and put them between the celluloid and projected light to it. So he was actually making a film without exposing the film. Wow. Uh, which is really cool. And I think I took a lot from that. You know, your, your teachers do influence a lot of what you do. Um, but yeah, that was, that was from that. And I think it was, uh, at that time I had just seen Chris Marker's La Jete and I wanted to make a photo Roman because I, my, when you talk about producing, I, I remember, um, I remember showing my script to, I forgot who it was. I think it was cricket and her name was cricket. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. and my script required New York city to be empty and they had just filmed, uh, was it Vanilla Sky with, with Tom Cruise? Yep, yep, yep. Time, and they, they had cleared Times Square at the cost of somewhere like two and a half to three million dollars. <laughs> and she's like, you're going to do that on a budget of you know $200. And I was like, yeah. And what, um, what we ended up doing was we just went out at like three in the morning and you know the gods smiled on us. It was a rainy day. A rainy day. And when you shoot black and white at low exposure, rain doesn't even show up. Uh, and we just had, I was the actor and I just went around New York city. We found out empty alleys and I took a roll of 20, $20, uh, single bills. And there was some guy just, you know, drinking in the corner. I'd be like, here's a couple of bucks. Can you get out of the shot? <laughs> like, and there it was, you know, the, the, the final movie I had New York city completely empty. And, uh, you know, and I was able to do it because of the photo Roman style. I, I wasn't shooting, you know, live action film. Mm. Uh, so I guess, you know, when you say producing, I think that's very true. Um, and it's producing by attrition more than by instruction. Exactly. Exactly. And then you, you end up picking up all these tricks of the trade um, that, you know, you end up pulling out of your ass when you're, when you're under the gun now. Like there's right. plenty of stories I can go into on how producing is ultimately saved what the production is um and it actually enables me to do stuff or one in in the beginning at least to do stuff when i had no fucking money at all you know so right and i think you know it's also your it's your commitment to the shot right and like if you've decided in your head i absolutely need this to tell the story i need to tell you're going to make it happen, you know, or, or else, you know, and if you don't have that commitment, you'll waffle and you won't find those solutions. Um, you know, I think, yeah, you know, like I needed New York city empty. So like it, my story wouldn't work if I didn't have that. So you just kind of, you just kind of find a way to do it. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent on that, you know, in hindsight. Yeah. The, the other thing that uh, I learned, and I think it's one thing that has actually affected my career intensely believe it or not, Dave, was that when I was headed into school, um, I came from a background of wanting to be a comic book artist and and doing storyboards, and I still do storyboards to date. Um, Mm -hmm. But I had thought about this movie before, or my final film, I had thought about my final film there before I even went to school. 
And so I had basically boarded it all out. And then the entire course for me was just learning how to use the camera, learning how to use all the stuff. And I had it all put together. So when we finally did it, and, I, and the school broke us into groups of, I think it was four ultimately. We Four. Yeah, it was like round robin and four. Yeah. And we only had three in ours because one of our, our classmates ended up bailing on us, I think. Right. Um, so... Uh, I planned out mine first because I had it all boarded out and uh, intentionally shot it at this high-rise apartment that I had found connections to. I was like sleeping on an extra bed in a closet in this high-rise apartment with this old lady like pre-sex in the city who would just be smoking cigarettes every day. And I'd come home and there's like cigarettes everywhere. And like I was paying her like $300 a fucking week for a bed. It was like ridiculous, you know? <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, that's just because as soon as she's gone, I'm going to shoot my fucking movie at her apartment, you know? <laughs> uh, and so we scheduled that whole thing out and I went and I filmed exactly what the storyboards were. So I went and I did everything, frame for frame, storyboard straight across the board. Um, and the movie came out okay, you know, and I went back into the edit room and in the edit room was like this big dark basement with a bunch of like steam back edit tables, which basically is cut and film, cut and paste film stuff, you know, and you're in this room and you're sharing this space. I forget how many tables there were. There's probably like 15 tables. It was like 15, yeah, 15 in there. Yeah. And so you're in this space with a bunch of other filmmakers that have headphones on and, and you just hear the reels running the whole time. And I had mine cut like this. Like I went through the process of just going storyboard, cut, 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 paste, paste, paste. And I was done. And it was such a mechanical thing. And then there were other people that were in that space that didn't do it my way. And it was sort of freeform. And they were discovering the film and they were discovering the performance. I don't remember, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was cutting. Like, you know, you have those little bins right next to the steam back, right? Where you hung up your strips of film. Yes. And uh, he was doing like, two frame cuts, you know, and like three frame cuts. And then he would like decide, oh, that's not what I would do. And he'd have to tape them all back together. Yeah, miserable. <laughs> yeah. He was, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do remember, you know, your film was so, it was one of the few that was complete from start to end. And, uh, I, that was the one where, uh, the guy was, uh, he was getting poisoned, right? Right. He was poisoning his like he was essentially poisoning his wife. Right. It was, right. It was a Hitchcock. Kind yeah. Of, it was like a Hitchcock ripoff, and it was, he was putting poison on the the, the, the rim of a glass. Right? Some bullshit, you know what I mean? And that, like the <laughs> it, it, it barely came across in the film, but you know. <laughs> well, I got it. Um, <laughs> You're but like, uh, but yeah, I, I think that that room the the ability to talk to other people and like just say hey can you take a look at this um was pretty cool but like the other part of it was like none of us knew what the fuck we were doing yeah yeah and i think there was something that actually really great that came out of that and that it made us rely on our our core instincts yeah but also uh, to to finish up what my point is that i think ultimately what i learned was how not to be so rigid as a director I learned, right. I learned that like, you know, boarding and everything is very important for, for prep and it's very important to make your days. And as a director, you got to do your homework to be able to answer all these questions. But I also found that there was something really exciting in improv and there was something really exciting in the moment. And I think as a response to that, after I got out of school uh, and I started to do my own films, I, I was intentionally putting myself in a situation where we had to kind of figure it out. Like I did the 48-hour film 
festival thing for a while. We did that for two years where they give you an idea and fuck yeah. a theme. Uh, yeah, that really great one. Uh, it, it's, it came off as a science fiction film first. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, um, it was about two male strippers. Or yeah, something, right? yes. What the? Fuck? <laughs> I can't even remember the name of my own movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, we did that one, uh, and we won, uh, most of the festival here in Boston for that. And it was, it was funny. I was very obsessed with Alien at the time. It was about, about a bunch of Android male strippers. And when one of them gets wound, he bleeds, he bleeds white, but he's in, he's in fucking like, like a jock strap and his hand just comes up and it's just covered in like semen at this point. And I was trying to just sell the fact that it's like, no, that's Android blood. And everybody's like, what ha- did he just come? Like, what is all over his hand? <laughs> it's funny to just hear you guys talk about, you know, like back in when you guys started and trying to, you know, scrap and do all these little things on no budget, no resources, because, you know, I'm, I'm living that right now. And it's, uh, I mean, I, to some extent, we're still doing that. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I shot my last feature for $31,000. Um, and then to, to your point, Mike, you know, like my very first film, the one that I took my NYU money from, uh, I shot that on 35 and I shot that in India on a 12 day schedule. Uh, and it was basically a one to one ratio. Like I didn't have, I didn't have film for retakes. Yeah. And so I had to storyboard every single thing. And you're right. When I got to, and then my editor's life was easy. He's like, where's your coverage? I'm like, what's coverage? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I seriously didn't know what coverage was. And like, uh, and I was like, no, you just connect A to B to C to D. Cause I only had one to one. And, uh, we had to rehearse everything before we shot. I didn't have that much time to rehearse, uh, because you had to make it count. And it was really mechanical. You know, and it was really rigid and it was really, it was visually beautiful. And I don't think I've ever had a problem with that. But like, yeah, like the performances, the the, the flow of it, the, everything was, it it felt as two-dimensional as a sheet of paper. Yeah. So when you guys are, when you guys are working on, you know, tight resources, tight budgets, and you have like a really strong vision, what's that line where you you try and do everything you can to stick to it and then you're forced to to bend a little bit, you know, like what's the process of figuring out when you have to, to roll with the punches? You can, um, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it's, uh, I think for me, I, I'm not going to speak for you, Mike. I, for me, it's talking to your actors and what they give to you. Like if they can give it to you, you know, like the greatest, the greatest visual effect is the human condition. Right. And like, if there's something that I can replace with performance over, uh, you know, over some, you know, elaborate tracking shot or something like that, that'll save me money. And if I can get the same thing across in a performance, that doesn't really cost me anything. Um, likewise, you know, I guess a few things like I never skimp on sound. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing that saves bad sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, that will never get, you know, touched in the, in the line items. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, I think part of producing, especially at that tiny budget, is every decision you make should still reinforce what it is you're trying to say. And if you're starting to detract from your core message, then you're going down the wrong path. 
you're making you're making the movie that you didn't set out to make. Um, yeah. And so you know that's that's your litmus test right there. Like you know, a lot of times I'll choose one word that represents the film. Like my second film, Lilith, uh, I wanted to convey what um, regret felt like. The whole movie was about regret. Mm-hmm. So every decision, whether it was creative or financial, I had to tell myself, is this conveying what regret feels? And if it wasn't, then I was making the wrong choice. Um, you know, kind of taking a holistic approach to it. But uh, that that's my litmus test. Um when I have to make those decisions of what can go and what has to be modified. Yeah. Uh, it's good, man. That's, that's actually, there's a really, a lot of really good points there. It's like when you write a script, like they often tell you that you need to know what the log line for the script is before you even get started. Right. Like you need to know, you know, ultimately what is this message that, that I'm getting across? What are the themes that I want to get across? I, I was listening to an interview with uh, Guillermo del Toro the other day and he was talking about uh, doing large budget movies and for him, it's usually about like one or two specific moments. And that's the whole reason he does the movie, you know? Right, right. Actually, I was talking to, uh, uh, I produced a film that was showing at Ebert Fest a couple of years ago. And I got to talk to Jeff Nichols because oh, cool. uh, uh, he was showing Take Shelter at the time. And he told me something really interesting. He said, you know, we seem to obsess on making every shot perfect and all that. And and everybody knows that doesn't happen. You know, you're going to have some stinkers here and there or just something that will connect A to, you know, A to C. So you need that B shot. Um, and he said for him, he needs that. If his ending, his, my endings have to punch you in the gut so that when you leave the theater, you remember it. Right. And you need to have one or two moments, at least minimum two to three moments that just stick with people. Everything else, people, nobody remembers, you know? And like, and those two or three moments are what the core of what the film is about. Um, and typically that's, that's like you said, that's what happens when we write. We usually start with a scene that for some reason is meaningful to us and we kind of build around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I was cutting 12 kilometers, I ended up uh, forcing myself to cut the, the final scene first. So I, right. I cut the movie out of order completely and I, I had to prove to myself that the end was worth sitting through the whole movie for. <laughs> so, well, now and I'm curious, Mike, because you, the origins of that story was something very intensely personal that only you know in your head, right? Like, what uh, that came out of a head, a head injury, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Initially, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. So, like, obviously, what you experienced in there is something only you know and only you can experience. So, like that ending, you know, as surreal and macabre as it was uh felt very very intimate uh you know i I felt like i was seeing a a part of you that that only you know you protected uh well thanks it's pretty thanks man yeah i i mean but i'm not going to take full credit for everything in that film i think that for me uh, filmmaking is incredibly collaborative straight across the board and, sure. and usually what I do is I'll come up with a good idea or I'll come up with something that I want to investigate or I'll come up with something that I want to like sort of disappear in for an extended amount of time, to, whatever it takes right. to do that. Um, but then I also go through the process of casting. And, and I don't mean just casting uh, my actors. I mean casting all the people that I want to work with. Sure. Um, 
And I think that a lot of what is great about 12cam is that the themes and the, the fears that I had that were coming from uh, the head injury, which is essentially like not being able to trust your own inner voice, like essentially <laughs> at its core. And then um, one of the things that I was also dealing with was loss. And I really wanted to make a film on like how people process the loss of someone that they love. Right. So those two core elements were why that film got started for me. But then the most amazing part of that, that whole process, that life experience for me was that I met these people that brought so much to it. Like when I met Lyndon Gledhill, who's the, uh, uh, the biochemist and the macro photographer, mm-hmm. we, do- we dove into this world where we found that creature and, and that changed. I shot that stuff first. So, right. so that, that, that changed the way the script ran from there. And then, what uh, what made you want to do it in Russian? Just because you felt like you needed another challenge on top of it? Or? <laughs> yes. yes. I just felt like my life wasn't going to be difficult enough. <laughs> right. um, well, I mean, basically, I had heard about the story uh, years before. Um, and one of my, the lead, Ara, um, who's in it, him and I had worked on this little short together. And I, okay. I said, look, I heard this really great story about this Russian drill team that dug into this planet and uh, he goes, we should make it. And I was like, yeah, and if we right. do it, we should do it in fucking Russian because it takes place in Russia. And he goes, yes. And I go, no one's going to want to buy this. And so we, we never made it, you know, and, and uh, to uh, get back to a point that I've talked to uh, with you about before, like if you have a great idea, sometimes it's not right at that moment. And I find right. that I just put ideas down in books and I just let them sit there and you're off and stewing. It's always in the background for me, right. for everything. And uh, after the head injury, and I went through that crazy five days in intensive care, and I was losing my mind, and I had the hematoma, and the you, you can't go to sleep for two days, and you won't wake sure. up. And all that sort of shit was kicking in there, and I was like, wow, I have this great idea for this story about uh, your inner voice not being your own, and then how do you get infected by it? And then right. the Russian sort of history came back, and I was like, oh, this would be a really cool cold open to right. a feature. Um, and then fast forward to when uh, I write a draft of a feature and then I decide that I have to create a proof of concept. Um, and after being put through the misery that I went through on the Punisher fan film that I never got released. Right. And I, I already... Which is, I love it. <laughs> thank you, Dick. I already uh, had tapped into my crew of people that are around me previous to this saying like, we're going to make this fucking thing. It's going to be so fucking great. And like the world's going to love it. And I can't wait to go out. And then none of them could show anybody it. So I didn't want to go into doing a, a sizzle reel and just creating a piece that was like two minutes that didn't really do anything. I was like, if I'm going to ask fucking favors, if I'm going to go through this process, I have to take a cold open, which really isn't a complete yeah. short film. And make it into something longer. And since I'm financing the fucking thing, I'm gonna do it in Russian. Like it, the, right. the, the feature, the feature wasn't in uh, Russian, and it was like, well, the cold open would have been in Russian. And I always hate it. Like, uh, you know, what is it, the Thirteenth Warrior, where like Antonio Banderas is hanging out with a bunch of Vikings, and he learns the fucking language. You know what I mean? Right. So that so it changes into English at that point. I was like, no, man. And honestly. Here's a here's a little insider clip for you. Uh, I picked Russian because I knew that I had no money, and I knew right. that I couldn't hire good actors. 
<laughs> so I just assume that the American audience would see bad performances in Russian and go, well, that's just how Russian people act. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you were able, obviously, not knowing the language. I, I, I don't know. You don't, do you know? No, I have no, I have. So like, so like, you know, as a director, then if you're directing in a different language, how do you, how do you know what, <laughs> you're just going on a gut? I well, I mean, what I did is I, I wrote the script in English and then I had to have the script translated, which was a whole process within itself because there's some sarcasm in my script and Russians don't understand what sarcasm is. Right. Yeah. It falls flat. Yeah. yeah. So like that was a fucking thing. And then uh, <laughs> most of the actors that I hired also spoke English except for uh, the professor. And the professor right. is like a trained theatrical. He's like, <laughs> he's like fucking uh, Al Pacino of the stage in Russia, essentially. <laughs> so like he comes with his own opinion on everything. He's like 60 something years old. And he right. quote unquote didn't speak English. So I had to have translators on set. And what I right. didn't want to have happen was have a communication that happened between the, all the actors without me in it. So I had two translators on set. So I would have one translator tell me something and then I would ask another one what they said just to be constantly checking on what was said through the whole process of it. Uh, well, I, you know, when I saw it for the first time, I always say, you know, it being in Russian added to the alien alienness of it. Yeah. If that's a word. Um, you know, because like it really felt, it felt otherworldly because it's just creating further distance from, you know, from being able to relate to something because you want to relate to it, but it's so foreign and it's so alien and so mysterious. You're kind of, this barrier is put in between you and it creates this really great tension. I, I think it's a great choice. Uh, Thanks man. Yeah. I'm glad, it, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, um, but no, that's really cool. But I guess kind of get, getting back to the producing end of things, uh, yeah, I, 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 I like what you're saying. There are certain stories that live with you and there's a right time to do it. And I, and I, I, have try, I tried coming out of film school to produce a script that I wasn't ready to do. Hmm. And I found it to be – I was more willing to compromise on things just to get it made because I wasn't ready for it. Um, and like, you know, it fell through. I actually had financing uh, – uh, for, it was an eleven million dollar picture, and I actually had financing. Oh my god, dude! Uh, I had worked. It was it was a co-production with DreamWorks and Reliance, and right there, that was two thousand six. Uh, that's when uh, Lehman Brothers happened. Wow! And the stock market crashed, and my funders lost forty like forty eight percent of their stock value. Gosh! And they pulled the plug. They said, "No, we can't do it anymore." So I still have a warehouse full of costumes and weapons and all this kind of stuff. It was a martial arts film. <laughs> and, um, but I look back on it, I was not ready to make that film. And the film I was going to make was a piece of shit uh, because I had compromised so much to get that money um, that it was really no longer close to what I wanted to make. Hmm. Uh, so I view it as a good thing uh, that it didn't happen. It hurt like hell at the moment. Um but probably for the better. I can only imagine, man. I can. I, I mean, I, I don't have stories of that scale, but there is the the heartbreak of of setting out to do something, and then uh, having the carpet pulled out from underneath you. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, which has now happened to me twice. Uh, I feel like it's. I feel like it's part of the deal, though. I feel like <laughs> right, right. Uh, no, it is part of it because you know making film is you have to get at least minimum a hundred people on the same page at the same time yep. in the same place, you know, and and orchestrating all those things into that perfect storm is difficult, um, you know. Whereas when I did Six Angry Women, which was my last film, you know, just like you said, you know, there was just something that was percolating in my head ever since Trayvon Martin got shot. I was like, I need to do something about this. And I tried writing that script and the script was forced uh, because my own politics were informing it. It, it wasn't true to what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so I put it away. I'd written like 60 pages and I put it away. And then, uh, and then Ferguson happened, you know, um, Mike Brown and all that. And I said, okay, this is getting ridiculous. I need to make this film. And right there at that moment, I decided we're not going to do, we're going to do it without a script. Um, we're just going to improvise this thing. Hmm. And, uh, I shot it in six days. I chose six theater actresses here in Chicago. Um, I worked with them for six weeks just on character. I didn't even tell them what movie we were making. I just said, you have to trust me. We're going to make a movie. <laughs> uh, they, they never, they never met each other wow. until, until what, a week before shooting. Uh, we just worked on character, 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 character. And I made them do exercises, you know, in character. Um, and then finally they met a week before production and I told them, all right, here's the deal. You guys are a jury and here's a case. And our only objective is to somehow find this guy not guilty of shooting this kid. Cause I want to know how that happens. Wow. Uh, and uh, and we went into shooting with that. I think I went into with a kind of a twenty-page breakdown of beats that I wanted to hit, but there was no shot lists, there was no storyboards, um, no nothing. Uh, and we had eight hours a day to do it, uh, which was you know it's terrifying. But like you said, when you I think as you start to learn film. Film is like the gentle, gentle art of letting go, you know, <laughs> and uh, you have what's in your head and then you have what your collaborators bring to you and you have to decide what's worth more, you know, is it the, the great unknown of what your collaborators bring or do you stick to your guns and be like, no, it was like this in the storyboard and this in the script and I want to do this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you guys need to help me make it happen. Um, yeah. So that making 600 women was such a liberating experience because I'd had the carpet pulled out from from beneath me two times, but here I was the boss. I had complete control. Uh, we were didn't know where we we're going to end up. It was it was just like going back to when you were a kid and you're doodling in your your notebooks and drawing pictures with no agenda and no idea. You were just doing it for the sake of of enjoyment. Um, and for the first time in a long time, I felt like I got to create again. You know, like just paint. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, it was a great, great, it was a terrifying experience, but it was an amazing experience at the same time. And yeah, this kind of DIY guerrilla filmmaking, um, I could have done it handheld kind of mumblecore, you know, just people improvising, riffing off each other, but I wanted it to be a very structured film. Like we were always on sticks. There was no handheld. Um, we used the only gear we, we had two, two sets of sticks and we had a slider. We had a, a five-foot slider. That was our only gear. Um, 
two red cameras, and then for lighting, my gaffer, we built an overhead rig that was on, uh, on, on dimmers. And we just had a bunch of bounce boards. <clears throat> and uh, my DP and I, we just watched like dozens of movies and we found our favorite shots that we thought would work for this. And we worked out a language. So like based on what my actors were giving me, I would stop and I'd say, Citizen Kane, 34th minute, low angle. And he would know exactly what that was. And we'd dim the, you know, adjust the dimmers, <laughs> a few bounces, and then keep going. So it was only like maximum you know, six to eight minutes between, between setups. Uh, so we were able to just really, really kind of pound through it and not lose the momentum of, of, impro- of improvisation. Um, so like these kind of things, you know, you don't learn those in school, but you learn, I think what school does is it judges your ambitions versus your abilities. And I think a lot of us in school, you know, we had very big ambitions for the kinds of movies we wanted to make. Um, and a lot of us found a way to, to make it happen. Uh, and I, and I think that's really, really, really amazing. Actually, <laughs> you know, like 12, I mean, 12 kilometers, like the quality of that film, like it is as good as any big, big budget film, you know? And like, uh, it's what, 28, 28 minutes long? Yeah, it's about, it's, it's about 30, yeah, 28, 30, around there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, that's big time filmmaking there, you know? And uh, even your ending, like, it's as good as anything I saw, like, you know, Jonathan Glazer's, you know, Under the Skin, right? It's, uh, but it's done with heart and there's meaning to it. Um, so that's, that's pretty amazing. Thanks, man. And, and like I said, I, I, I couldn't have done that film without rallying in the people that are surrounding me. And, and right. really, that film is the result of probably 15 years of me being a music video director in this city and creating these relationships and be, being best friends with the guys that own the rental houses. Um, right. And then uh, just understanding through the music video career, which was... Uh, quite the learning curve for me because I, I was co-directing. So that that's right. a whole other conversation to have on like, right. how do you co-direct and how do you split duties and, and that whole thing. So I, I learned over year over the years that we were doing that, how to be a, a collaborator. And I found that um, one of the best decisions I made when I was doing 12KM uh, was that I wasn't going to shoot it. Because right. I usually shoot all of the stuff, like I for years. Yeah, I was shocked. I was shocked you didn't you didn't shoot it. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, ultimately, it came down to like, okay, so I'm going to do this movie in Russian, so uh, I, I don't have time to answer. Because you have like two different waves of questions that come at you when you're a director DP, where it's like, right. you know, what are my motivations, and like, how the fuck can we get the generator in the driveway? You know what I mean? Like this, like right, d- right, double sided right. shit. So I. And your your DP was amazing. Yeah, David. No, no disrespect to you, but your DP was. Yeah, amazing. well, I mean that's the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, David Crude is fantastic, and I, I I set out intentionally to work with a DP that I knew that is better than me because I didn't want to be <laughs> with someone that was asking me how to do DP shit. And right. and uh, David and I we sort of had a little love affair where we sort of got together weeks ahead of time, and I had everything boarded to a T, and I was like, here are the boards, here's the shit. Let's, let's, uh, here are a bunch of the resources and here are a bunch of the inspirations for this film. 
uh, let's get into fights now before we get on the right. set. Like, so let's fight about it right. now and let's figure it out. Um, and I had only seen his reels and his, his real work was fantastic. And his first note to me was like, hey, look, you want this to look like uh, Spielberg and you want this to feel like the 80s. Let's shoot this with Russian uh, Lomo anamorphic lenses because it's Russian oh, right. and, and all that. And I was like, right. oh, that'd be great. How the fuck are we going to get those? Are you going to get those from Russia? He goes, well, I happen to have those. I was like, clever little fucking DP owner operator <laughs> move right there. Just selling me on the gear that you have. He's like, yeah. Right. Um, but it was fantastic. And then uh, I remember showing up on set that day, the first day, and I hadn't seen shit from him yet. And it must have been really stressful on him. He never showed it. So I love Kruda. He's like, he's like cold, cool, really nice guy. And uh, he was setting up for one of the office shots. And uh, he's like, I'm going to do my thing. And I'm like, go nuts. He knows everything. So he goes over, sets up the shot, lights the shot, calls me over to the monitor. And I go take a peek at the monitor. And I literally look at the monitor and I go, yep, we're good. And I, that really was the last time that I paid attention to what he was doing. Right, right. You know, like I would watch the takes, but I, I, I'm sure I'm sure you understand this too. Like when you're directing, like the, there's this fucking sea of shit that is constantly <laughs> coming at you, and the only right. time that you can rest is when you call action. And it, yeah, you know, I, I kind of share the, um, you know, when when you like example being a DP, they're called a director of photography for a reason, right? They're directing the photography, yeah, and like. Um, I don't get involved. You know, I, I, what we do is like you, like, just like you did, you know, weeks and weeks of prep where we show photographs and we show references and we show, this is how I like this, this is how I like that. But when you get on set, yeah, you got a million things coming at you. And like, last thing you want to do is like wondering, you know, where's that 12 K going to be sitting? Where's that, you know, all that. And just what I have him do is he does this setup. He taps me on the shoulders. Like, does this look good? I'm like, well, you know, can I want a little more shadow there? And that's about it. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's, um, the, the really, you know, I got, I got asked at a film festival, like, well, what's the key to directing? And I was like, one is just surrounding yourself with the right people, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it is the addition, audition, uh, audition process, whether it's your actors or your cast uh, or your crew, like, you put in a huge amount of effort to get the right people because you're going to battle with these folks. And you know, the most important person on the set is not you. It's the person right next to you. Yep. Uh, and like, yeah, if you don't choose that wisely, if you go into a production knowing that you don't get along with the DP or you got static or that kind of stuff, it's going to bite you in the ass. And like, uh, and that harmony shows on the screen. You know, because then you guys start creating with respect for each other, um, which is which is vital. But I want to ask you, like going back to like, you know, people just coming, you know, just starting in film. Do you I find a lot of filmmakers feel the need to own all their own gear, <laughs> um, which today I have a I have a Canon 770. That's about it, uh, because I need to, you know, every once in a while just noodle and, and make something. Um, but if I need something, I always go rent it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I always tell people like, if you want to own your own, cause I feel like so much of film school now is about being a gearhead, you know, like, and, and obsessing about gear and this new 16 K sensor and all whatever nonsense is coming out. I was like, you know, 
I always tell folks, and I don't know if you go through this, like if you want to be like a wedding photographer, yes, by all means, own your own gear. Because <laughs> you're, you're going to be working every, and there's a lot of money to be made in that, you know, making wedding videos. Uh, you'll never have a weekend free, yep. but you'll, you'll need your gear and you need to know how to maintain your gear. But I always tell, you know, if you want to be a narrative filmmaker, you know, get it from a rental house. Those people maintain that shit. They understand it inside out. And if you really sell them on your vision, they'll give it to you at a good rate. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause they, they want, they want to rental houses want to create relationships more than anything. It's, um, it's good that you're talking about this because if coming from a student perspective, this is something that never gets talked about. So for someone like me who's just starting out, it's honestly, it's assumed, oh, I should go buy a camera because right. like, what else, you know, what well, else am I hearing? It's, it's a double-edged sword because there's, there's a lot of piece of shit producers who will be like, you know, oh, I want to hire you. Do you have your own gear? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're saving money on that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, and like, oh, you got your own camera? Do you mind bringing that? You know, and, and you're just trying to get work. So yeah, in some ways your gear is going to, might get you a job, but from a holistic standpoint or a bigger standpoint, you're pulling money out of your pocket to make somebody else's picture in that regard, you know? And, and that just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, yeah. There's a predatory aspect. There's a predatory aspect of producing to people who have their own gear, you know, and a lot of DPs, I know they feel the only way they can get work is if they, is if they own their own lenses and they own, because they know a producer will say, Oh, that's a, that's a line item I can strike off my budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all depends, you know, like, cause I know kids who come out of, you know, I get a lot of interns and I always pay my interns. I, I don't believe in free work. Um, you know, they feel they came out of Columbia college and the first thing they feel the need to is, is to buy a camera. And to buy some glass and to, you know, get a, a, a basic set of lights. And it's like, well, if you want to direct, that's just not going to do anything for you. Um, except, you know, rack up your expenses. And then you got to maintain that stuff and you got to upgrade it. You got to do all this stuff. You know, do you really want to do that? If you want to be a DP, yes, work on your craft, keep making shit, get onto video, you know, video shoots and say, look, I got my own, I got my own gear. Let's make, you know, go approach a local band and be like, I'll, I'll make your music video. Um, but I feel like a lot of people are getting obsessed with the, building up their gear list. Mm-hmm. When, when the biggest thing that you can bring to the table is your skill. Um, you know, a plumber isn't good because he's got a certain kind of wrench. He knows what to do with the wrench, you know? And, and, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think that, narrative is getting lost with a lot of people. A lot of people are spending money on gear. Um, and I feel like they don't need to be doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dude, I completely agree with you. And I think to a certain extent, I think it's, uh, in part due to the manufacturers of a lot of this equipment, like they're, right. you know, you got NAB, you have all like these, you have these trade magazines that, that young producers and agency people that are picking up and they're reading through, this propaganda essentially that's like, you know, you're not a real fucking filmmaker unless you're shooting 4k, you know, you're not, right. you're not a real filmmaker unless you own a MacBook pro and, and, and like, uh, you know, what do you edit on? And, and it, it just, it's reminiscent of who we are as a culture right now, where we just assume that, Hey, look, if I 
you know, buy this or I download this app, then, you know, um, I, can, right. I can do this shit. It's really been affecting, I think, the quality of work that comes out because of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I read a lot of these articles, you know, like about the new Nikon 8K sensor and like, you know, there's this correlation between the, the, the kind of equipment you have and the quality of work that's going to come out of it. You know, you mean to tell me that Henri Cartier-Bresson's work would have been that much better if he had an AK digital sensor? <laughs> you know, no, it's just the fact that he had an eye for it and he had a technique and he had he had a viewpoint. And that's far more valuable than you could have given him a pinhole camera and he would have made be- you know, beautiful images. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, this is something I tell clients all the time. Like clients will come to us and ask, you know, um, are, you, are we going to shoot this 4K? You know, are we going to shoot this with an Alexa? Are we going to shoot this with a RED? And I, I usually ask two questions. One, what's your budget? First one. Right. And second question, where's it going? Who's going to look at right. it? What's, what's it going to be on? Is it going to be another fucking piece of content that ends up on a goddamn iPhone? Because if, right. if, it's, if it's going to end up on an iPhone, then tell you what, maybe we don't shoot at 8K, you know? And maybe you take that additional, what you think is a bigger budget, maybe that additional $10,000 that you have, and actually hire a good costume designer, actually exactly. hire a great locations manager. Because as a DP, uh, I can be in the room with the best fucking gear in the world. And if I'm shooting into a corner with like white right. white walls and a bad actor who's wearing a fucking Adidas hoodie that doesn't even fit the character, right. I, I'm like, well, shut the lights off, man. Because that's the only way this is going to look any good. Yeah, then you end up making timing wise as the room, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's much, but like, uh, which you know what? I wish I made timing wise as the room because timing wise has made more money than all of us put together. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I completely you know, the, and you know, these are these are the subtle things I think you learn in in, in film school, like, or even just being on a set. Yeah. I think being that, on a set is the big part of it, dude. Yeah, is that you know. It isn't the camera; it's the mise en scène, right? It's how you dress the set. You know, we were able to take a very simple shot and make it so beautifully complex by just adding layers of design in front of it. Mm-hmm. You know, put an object in front near the camera, put an object mid, put an object far. You know, all of a sudden, you've expanded the depth of the room uh, tremendously. And like, and it doesn't cost anything. You know, it's just uh, it, it, it costs like a dollar. You know, to get a prop and put it right in front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and those are, yeah, I think the, the, the narrative of coming out of film school is that you have to be this technical whiz and you have to be up on technology. No doubt you should always be reading uh, and you should always be, you know, futzing around. If you can get your hands on on a new camera, go ahead and try it. Um, but it's not the end all be all. Uh, you're not a button pusher. You're, you're an artist, you know. Yep. Uh, and uh, I think that's when you walk into a room for you know i i think we were advantageous when we're coming out of film school and that we didn't have these cameras to to kind of fall back on as as a way for it's for us to get work <laughs> you know it was uh, yeah. uh it was all about what do you bring to the table your efficiency i found that what a lot of people cared about is like can you deliver this on time and under budget mm-hmm. you know and if if i could demonstrate that multiple times over and over and over again, no shortage of work, you know, because word got around. I mean, it was with, uh, uh, Leo Burnett here in Chicago. It's an ad agency. You know, a lot of producers know as a director, I'll get you on time and under budget and your stuff will look great. 
Um, and once you get that reputation, you will get work. Um, so it's like organizing your thoughts, being efficient on set, you know, uh, uh, that will get you more work. Um, I think it was, uh, John Lasseter at Pixar. They asked him like, in terms of hiring, like you have one candidate who is a genius, who is, you know, a visionary, but he's kind of mercurial, not a great team player versus you have another guy who works well with others, has his own ideas, but is a collaborator, but he's not, he's not like Stanley Cooper genius. And Lasseter said, I'll take candidate B every single time <laughs> because, because candidate A, while he, while he might make something really, really amazing someday, that's not what I need. I, some, I don't need someday right now. I need right now, you know? And, and, when you come out of school, we're not all lucky to be PT Andersons to like, you know, create heart eight right out of the <laughs> gate. You know, that's, that's, that's a, we're not Soderbergh where we make, you know, we'd like to think we are, but th- those are, those are, you know, lightning in a bottle situations. Yeah. So let, um, let me just ask, what are your steps or what were your steps, you know, coming out of, out of school? And I guess if you could go back, you know, would you do stuff differently? Yeah. Or do you I think- mean, I think. I think for all of us, it's catch 22, right? You can't get work without money and you can't get money without work. So at some point you have to create some proof of concept, uh, which is the money that I was supposed to put into grad school. Uh, I, I made a film and that was enough proof of concept for some people to say, look, I'm going to take a chance on you. Um, you know, because I made a 97 minute movie on 35 millimeter uh, you know, on a, that budget was $62,000. Um, you know, and I managed to set, it wasn't great, but it showed enough for me to take the next. So the, my first movie, 19 revolutions, which is a piece of shit movie. It's terrible. <laughs> um, it did enough for me to get into the Sundance lab. That's awesome. man. Uh, you know, so, because what I told him was, look, I made a movie for this little money in the most crazy conditions, everything else after that to me is a piece of cake and I want to learn more, you know? And that's all I told him. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the, the, the approach I took on that. Um, but I think coming out, yeah, one, just demonstrating what you're able to do, uh, you know, on a very limited scale, like Mike, I remember you did those, uh, Starving with Lou, you were you were doing webisodes before webisodes was a thing. Yeah, yes, right. and it was it was really before we knew what the fuck it was too. <laughs> like it was, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were great because it was kind of really weird, subversive humor. It was very Clerks kind of thing. It was, I mean, I really loved those things. Those, those were great. But like, it was proof of concept that you kind of knew what you're doing and probably that's what a lot of your music video work was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, really proof of concept is an important thing. You have to prove to folks that a, yeah, if you don't have the talent yet that you're learning the talent and that you're, you're growing, but B, you also have to prove that you have a work ethic. And for, for me, there's two sides of film. Like there's the theory and storytelling and, and all that, which I love. And then there's, the blue collar side of film, which is the, the crew technician, that world. And I think at least my opinion to be a great director, that's a good collaborative director. You, you have to know both. And so when I started and when I 
kicked out, I, I immediately went to work. So like I got, I decided that I was gonna leave New York, even though I was asked to stay and move in with, I think Mark and a bunch of folks. I decided right. that I was going to leave New York City and come back home and start my own company. And then I actually went out and started working on crew. Mike, did you find that being in Boston helped you because there were fewer competitors? Or um, I, I, Ultimately, the, the first reason was that I went through such misery trying to put together uh, productions in a city that I didn't have any contacts in that right. I was like, oh, fuck, man. Imagine what I could do when I get back home and I know all these people and I can make really great films. So th- right. that was my first step back here to the city. And then Boston has since formed a pretty amazing film community because of the tax incentives and over the years that's right. been, right. been, been doing. But when I first started, it was sort of dwindling. And th- it was sort of like the ghost of some sort of film industry that had existed here. So it was really just me and a, a close group of indie people that were in town and putting our heads down and sort of working on stuff which I thought was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I ultimately, you know what? I did make the right move now, knowing that I made the right, right move. But at the time, it was such a long process of saying like, look, if I had stayed in New York, would I be somewhere? Yeah, probably. And I'd probably be further, I'd probably be working in the trailer cutting studio with Mark. You know, I'd, I right. would have been further as a technician if I had stayed in one of those cities. But because I came back home, I was able to focus on my life as a storyteller more right. than a technician. And, and um, I learned the technical bullshit. I also learned how to start a company. I learned how to make money. I learned how to do right. all that. And I, right. I, I haven't had a real job in 16 years. I mean, essentially <laughs> I've, I've been doing my own thing since, but um, I think not to ramble on it, but I think that uh, it's a, it's an interesting starting point. I think that if you're going to be a good director, and you're going to be a commander of a ship, right? And you're like, let's say you're running a submarine. You need to fucking know what the guys in the boiler room do. You need to know how the periscope works. Even though you're not the guy that uses it all the time, you need to know these things because when you're in that environment and you're just simply asking somebody to do something, (laughs) I've seen directors and I've been on sets with directors that I want to punch in the face because they'll sit there and go, can't we just turn it around? And you're like, asshole, there are like fucking six 5Ks outside that window. That's that's like a that's like a three-hour turnaround time right. for this. If you had done your fucking homework and you had done your shot listing stuff the right way and done all that stuff, you wouldn't make it miserable for everybody involved. Right. And right. at the end of the day, uh, I wish that this business, sometimes I wish that this business is like sketching. Like with, with sketching or painting, it's you and your brushes and you just sit down and you do it. But the reality of filmmaking is that your brushes come with uh, child support. They come with like <laughs> some crazy fucking story on the way to work. I mean, my production designer on 12KM got arrested on the way to set because he didn't renew his fucking driver's license. So he couldn't get to set in time to build right. the, the location on my set. So like, like you just... I think filmmaking, and, and this is what I love about it too, and this sort of brings me back to the whole point of this thing, is that filmmaking is this thing where you are embedded with other people. And if we're telling stories about humans, then you should be. Like you right. physically should be out there talking to people and, and interacting with people. Um, but at the same token, these people changed my life. Right. And the, these right. people are an important part of my life. 
you know? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm off on a tirade, but I really, right. yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, going back to like the proof of concept thing, like the the two big questions, like one, how do you do that proof of concept? Two, well, three questions, like how do you do proof of concept? Two, how do you get yourself on a set? Yes. Right. Yeah. And then, and then three is how do you live during this period where you're working, but you're not really getting much money, you know? Um, you know, and the, the money aspect is you need a day job, you know, you need to pay your bills, you know? And, 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 uh, one of the great disservices of our country, which other countries don't have is that, you know, other countries have universal health care. We don't. So we need, you know, we, def- we need to find a way to get health insurance, you know? And, uh, um, oh, but by the way, you live in the, in the city of Massachusetts, you get free health care. I get free health. Yeah, that's true. So that's we're right. in a good spot here. Right. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, brother, but right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Under Mitt Romney, no less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So like, you know, taking care of your needs, is one thing. And I will always, I will be the first to admit, I have no shame about this. My folks helped me out. Um, I burned through, you know, I had my earnings that I made in England. When I came to the U S uh, my money doubled because the British pound was doing very well at that time. Nice. But you know, one year in New York city and I burned through it, you know, pretty much. Uh, you know, I had to pay my tuition for, for New York film Academy. And then I paid my tuition for New York, uh, for NYU. um, and I couldn't sustain it. And I, against all my pride, I went to my parents and I said, I need some help, you know? And I was, you know, I was working another job, but like my dad was like, you need to focus on this. This is a career shift. Nobody, nobody does a career change, you know, halfway. Um, and he helped me out. He helped me out for a year, you know? And like, uh, and I can't, yeah, I went to him and I said, you know, I need help. And my parents were like, finally, you were asking us for help. <laughs> you know, like, and, uh, you know, I, I made my first film and, uh, I sold it for two territories. And the first thing I did, I wrote a check back to my pops, you know, and he didn't take it, but he's like, he's like, this is my duty as a parent. And I'm blessed with good parents. I, I, I'm always very fortunate with that. And I know a lot of people don't have that and it's a privilege. Um, but I always say, you know, art, Creating art in many ways is a privilege. And if you can't make it happen on your own, you might, you need the support of people around you. My wife, you know, she earns consistently and my business is feast or famine. You know, I'll do one commercial and that'll take care of, you know, half of my year. Yep. Um, but then like, you know, there's that period where I, I don't have anything and I've got a two year old kid and I have a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, she picks up that slack and like, it does take a village, you know, to, to, to make these things happen. Um, so the finance end of it, you know, get a day job, cover your expenses. Um, I tell a lot of actors, you know, who are doing, you know, waiting, you know, waiting tables or out that stuff. I said, you gotta save, you know, save up money so that at least for like one, three to five months stretch, you can get by without working. <laughs> so at that time, you do your auditions. If you get on a, a, a job, you can do that job full time. You know, um, that's where you can invest in your craft. And then, you know, the, the second aspect of it is getting on a set. It's a simple thing. Just walk up to, you know, find out, go to Mandy.com and, and, and find out who's shooting what, or, you know, 
go to your local college and be like, oh, they're shooting a film. I started as a PA and it was cliche. But, uh, you know, I was driving around Chicago picking up art supplies and coffee and donuts and, you know, but I was always on set. Uh, you know what? And, and to interrupt you, PA is such an underrated position. Like, oh, yeah. PA is actually the most fucking important position sometimes on a movie because, right. you know, when we were doing 12KM, we were shooting that last scene with that flashlight and we decided to save money and right. shoot an entire scene with the flashlight. Well, the fucking thing started flickering halfway through, and it turns out that we needed to replace batteries every 12 minutes in the flashlight. So the batteries, like it ended up costing me like $700 to shoot wow. with that flashlight. And that we were in a standstill for like an hour and a half on a set that right. everything's ticking and the fucking world is crumbling down around you. Uh, and uh, like I'm ready to change the look of the film. You know, and the and the right. PA is just racing against time, like plowing through people to find these right. batteries. So, like, <laughs> I I think that a lot of people look at a PA position and they go, uh, you know, it's just a PA position. It's the best place to learn about everything. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I will always tell PAs, you know, because I've been, I had a PA who literally came up to me and said, you know what. I think this camera angle might be better for you, right? <laughs> wow. Because, <laughs> you know, he, he just he just come out of film school and, like, you know, he was he was the next Kubrick in his head. And, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you know, he had some he had some balls on him. But, like, you know, I, uh, I was doing – I was a PA on uh, Public Enemies, uh, Michael Mann's film when they were shooting here in Chicago. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, I learned so much from that shoot. And he had a he had an extra who was in the background who walked up to him and asked him what his motivation was. And like, he's like, I feel like I should be doing something, you know. I should, I should feel like I have, I have a story to tell, you know. <laughs> and, uh, if I could recorded man's reaction to that, um, like that, it 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 makes Christian Bale look like a child. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's like as a PA, you know, you're a monkey with a crayon. You're there to just help shit move along. You know, you're probably not going to get paid. You're probably going to have to pay gas out of your own pocket to get to set. But that is just getting in. And if you demonstrate yourself as reliable at that stage, yep. right, and you do more work than is asked, than is asked of you, you will get another gig. Yep. Uh, and and uh, that's what I always did. I always did 150% more than what people asked of me. Um, and I never stepped on toes, but I just did the extra work. You know, I made sure that my, you know, T's were crossed and the I's were dotted and made sure other people's T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. Um, and I made myself indispensable. Uh, which, like you said, Mike, you know, PAs are so required. And if you make yourself un indispensable as a PA – You'll get hired, you know, uh, on the next gig. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's where it always starts, you know, and like, and you start to learn the language, you know, the slang, the parlance, like, fuck, gaffers speak a different language that I still don't understand half the time. <laughs> I don't understand either. Uh, and I've been a DP for years. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, like, um, and so you pick up on the parlance and the parlance is part of creating camaraderie, you know, and, 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 
and getting to know people and hanging out and that kind of stuff. And somebody will say, Hey, I know this guy is a really good guy. He's reliable. You know, he's, he's, he's good muscle. You know, he'll carry 10 sandbags if you need him to. Um, he's an extra set of hands and they'll bring you on. And then, you know, you slowly work your way up. If you want to direct, you know, get, get on a camera team, become an AC, become all those kind of things. You're getting just proximity closer and closer and closer to the direct, you know, and, and, uh, you know, or the producer, depending on what, what you want to do. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And I, sure. I completely agree with you, man. And I think that at the end of the day, it, it really is about showing that you, We'll put in that extra mile that you will go that far with it. And if you have the balls to do so and you see someone that you can approach, go to them and say, look, I want to be your right hand man. I want to be the person that learns right. this shit. And you, you'd right. be so surprised at how many people don't come and ask that. And so, yeah. And it's an old adage, which I learned in business school. Uh, uh, I did get my MBA too. <laughs> Again, r- ridiculous amount of education, but, um, in business school, I was always told when you go to raise funds, and it's an adage that has always worked for me, is that if you ask for money, you'll get advice. But if you ask for advice, you'll get money. Right? And it's kind of the same thing on a film set. Um, you know, if you ask to get paid and you ask to get all that, then nobody's going to pay you. But if you ask, if you come to them and say, I want to learn, or, you know, I want to know how this works. Or I really like what you did. Can you, can you, you know, I want to learn how you did that. People are going to bring you in, you know, and uh, always display your curiosity first. Because if you're not curious, then you shouldn't be a filmmaker. Um, And so like that becomes your USP, you know, Uh, question, you know, always ask first, never demand a, you know, can you finance this picture for me? I'm a really great director. Nobody's going to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, I think that really helps. And then the, I guess the third part is getting to that proof of concept. When you've done your PA thing and like, just like, you know, you, Mike, in your development that you've built this community around you and you have people that you can go to and say, look, hey, I have this idea. Do you want to shoot it with me? Um, that becomes feasible, you know? And uh now with Kickstarter and GoFundMe and all this kind of stuff where you basically bug all your relatives and friends to finance your film, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's possible, you know, and, 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 uh, you can get some funding for that. Um, and that's where your proof of concept comes out. But I also think with proof of concepts, you need to decide, design something that you can make. You know, I, I know there's a lot of scripts that I've read here in Chicago, young, young, talented filmmakers, but it just requires so much resource to make happen that it's unrealistic, you know? And one of my good friends here in town, uh, Joe Swamberg, he's the, the father of Mumblecore, right? Um, mm-hmm. He just started making movies that he can make right away. You know, I need two people in a kitchen talking about white people problems. <laughs> and like, and that's what he did. And he's made a cottage industry out of it, you know? And, and, uh, but he was able to make those movies, Right away, it didn't require the attachment of a star or, you know, or anything complicated that requires talking to agents and managers and all that stuff. It's just you could do it right away, you know. And and, uh, and if your proof of concept demonstrates your ability to execute and create strong, compelling visuals that tell a narrative, then you're, then you're, you got, I think you have a good fighting chance, you know. 
Um, and it's good. That's, I think that's great advice. And I think that's really a good spot for us to wrap out uh, this yeah. episode. Uh, we're clocking in at about an hour and a half at this point. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, and it, it's been so long. You and I could probably talk for five hours and, and I, I, I want to keep talking as soon as we get off this. Um, sure. So thanks so much for being with us today, Shreeder. And um, oh, my pleasure. Is there anything that you want to plug right now? Is there anything that you want to put out there? Uh, no, I mean, I have a publishing company called Z2 Comics. We make comic books. Uh, if you like comics, read them. Uh, if you write comic books, we're always, we're an indie publisher. We always do cool stuff. Um, so that's, that's out there. Um, I guess the last thing, you know, I just don't always tell people like, it's a, it's an industry filled with crushing defeats all the time. You got to have a thick skin. Um, but if it's something that you really, if you're willing to take a bullet for your art, then it's worthwhile. You, the, the, the one victory that comes out of the thousand defeats feels so monumentally beautiful. It's totally worth it. So, well, that's, that's actually a beautiful statement. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, brother. This episode is brought to you by Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker or photographer looking to upgrade your edit system to something bigger, better, and faster, and when you go look at the price tag on the Apple website and say, are you serious? <laughs> go visit PugetSystems.com and check out their post-production systems. They are affordable and 4K fast. I have two in my office and one that I'm using right now to edit this. If you happen to be attending NAB this year, stop by Puget's booth and say hello. I'll be there showing off my sweet new winter belly and answering some questions about the upgrades that we have on our systems. Speaking of NAB, also go check out the booth for our next sponsor, Ezo. Now here's why I love Ezo. Simply put, true color monitors. That means what I see on the monitor is what it looks like printed, mastered, on TV, or on my iPhone. So go to Ezo.com to find the perfect monitor to fit that new Puget system that you're picking up. Also, follow me on Instagram to see what kind of crap I'm eating these days and sneak peeks and looks at stuff that I'm working on. We'll be at NAB this year recording a few podcast episodes and then drooling over all this stuff that we can't afford. Come hang out. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening, guys.